0: Now, if you do need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will make sure that you have one to follow along with us. And if you have it, you can open to Revelation chapter 18 tonight. We are drawing towards a close. I hope Jesus comes back before we finish. I heard a lot of amens. In chapters 17 and 18, where we find ourselves in our study of Revelation, the final stroke of God's judgment is being meted out to a Christ rejecting sinful world. There has been a period of time in our study of seven years wherein God has poured out his wrath, where he has made things right, where he has made, you know, poured out justice, if you would upon a world that has lived in rebellion against Him. We've seen the seven seals as the Lord Jesus opened up the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and the judgments poured out. We've seen the seven trumpets as the angels took their trumpet and sounded, and wrath and judgment was poured out upon the world. We've seen the seven vials, the seven bowls, the heaviest, the most severe of the plagues, poured out. And now as we come to the end of the tribulation, Babylon, that system, that city, that worldwide core system of values and ethics, all of it comes before God. And here we have the judgment and the destruction of that system, of that city, of Babylon. Now in chapter 17, the text that we looked at last week, we saw, if you would, kind of the arraignment of Babylon. You know, if you can picture kind of somebody who is brought before a judge in an earthly court. The first thing is the arraignment where the person is identified, the crime is declared, and the intent to bring that person to trial, all of that becomes official at the time of arraignment. And in chapter 17, we saw the arraignment. Mystery Babylon was identified before us there. And we talked about the system of values and ideals, ethics, if you would, of this system that governs and shapes all of the activities that happen in the world, this unit that we call the world or that the Bible calls the world that is at enmity with God. The Lord IDs or identifies that system or that city, as it uses in poetic form, as first of all, a whore. He uses that term to kind of define and describe the way that system operates. That it's an unfaithful system. That it's plastic. It's not real. It promises something, but it can't really deliver. And, And that it's a relationship that's based upon crooked values. He says that the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. That is, that there has been a relationship between the ruling bodies, the governments of the world and the kings of the world, and that system for mutual profit, the system seeking to propagate and elevate itself, and the kings of the world seeking to use and abuse that system so as to glorify themselves. And then he tells us that the result of that relationship is that the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication, that it has clouded the minds... That it has intoxicated those of us that are just seeking to to live life. That we have been drawn in. We've been influenced by the system. And it has affected us in a very powerful and very real way. And so the system is described and, and shown to us for what it is plainly there in chapter 17. And now as we come into chapter 18. We have the judgment of the system. The trial, if you would, takes place in verses 1 through 8. Chapter 17 being the arraignment. Verses 1 through 8 being the trial where, you know, kind of the the guilt of that system is declared. And then verses 9 through 20, or really 9 through 19 of chapter 18, is the judgment where the sentence is carried out. So the arraignment, chapter 17, the trial, verses 1 through 8, Chapter 18, and then the sentence carried out in verses 9 through 19, and then the, 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 the end of the chapter, verses 20 through 24, is really the response, heaven's response, to this trial and this judgment of this system. And so as we look at verse 1 there, and we see first of all now this arraignment, John writes and he says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. The word power there is the word authority, that this angel, we don't know who it is, he's not identified as anything other than just another of God's ministers, but that this is one that has great authority, and is so empowered by God, that his presence upon the earth brings light to the skies. And it says that he cried mightily, with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation or the dwelling place of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, we know by this time that the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John. And of all of the New Testament writers, and of all the apostles, and those that knew Jesus, you know, even in the Old Testament and into the New, John has a very unique perspective on things. His writings come from a very unique perspective. In First in John, the letter that he wrote to the churches, which some church Fathers and historians actually believe that he wrote 1 John after he was given the revelation. And, you know, they say that there's things written there that are relevant. You know, after receiving the revelation, he writes a letter to the churches kind of to lay priorities forward. But there's a quick little paragraph in First John where John, in chapter 2, sums up in really a single sentence... The ideals and the values, the entire motivating force behind the system of this world, really the Babylon that we looked at last week. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes and he says, better turn there and read it and not just try to quote it because you're reading it on the screen and if I get it wrong you're going to know it. He says, love not the world. And when he says the world, he's talking about this system, this this core that we're talking about. Neither, he says, the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world." And the world is passing away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You know, the the older I get and the busier my life becomes, I like it when things a lot is said in a few words. And and John has a way in saying that, of summing up everything that this world stands for, he puts it under three categories. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says that all of those things describe and define the world that we live in. But then he says that those things and the world included in those things is not of the Father, but is of the world. And he draws this incredible contrast. He he draws a line in the sand, if you would. And he says, this is everything that is worldly on this side of the line. All that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and everything that comes under that banner is on that side of the line. And on this side is that which is of the Father, the love of the Father. And he draws the distinction and he says that these two things are mutually exclusive that they do not intermingle with each other, they don't spill over and kind of, you know, make this kind of relationship where, you know, one kind of uses the other, or one is acceptable unto the other in certain instances, or that you can kind of operate within both systems, here a little and there a little, and, and kind of make your way happen that way. But he says, no, that everything that is of the world is not of the Father. And if any man loves the world... The love of the Father, he says, is not in him. The two things are at enmity with one another. James tells us in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James takes it even further. He doesn't just describe and define it by drawing a line in the sand and saying, this is on one side and this is on the other. He says that anyone that calls themselves a brother or that claims the love of the Father, that operates and loves this world or lives within its boundaries, is at enmity with God. That The two things are mutually exclusive. In John chapter 15, verse 19, Jesus himself says that if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. That it goes further than just the distinction between the two systems, and between the operation of a person in one or, or of the other, but Jesus himself says that I have called you out of the one and placed you into the other, and therefore, You cannot have a right relationship with the the one on the other side to intermingle within that system. The world hates you, Jesus said, because I have called you out of the world. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, the church in Rome, and he describes a completely different system. See, John described the world. He said, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That is what defines the world and its values. Paul tells us what defines the values of the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 and 18. He says, for the kingdom of God, not the world now, not the system that's passing away, that's corrupt according to its deceitful lusts, but the kingdom of God that endures forever, that is founded upon God's government, and that will last and reign forever. He says, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink but rather righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. Now the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of that deals with things physical. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, all of those things are spiritual. They're of real value. They're eternal. One is passing away, it's perishing, it's corrupt. But the other endures, it lasts, and it brings life. The two systems, the kingdom of God and this present evil world, are driven by completely different values, and therefore they are mutually exclusive, the one from the other. They cannot mix at all. God does not integrate within the system of this world, and use its values and core systems. He doesn't approve of them. He doesn't fellowship in them. And therefore, the spirit that drives this world, Paul called it the spirit that works now in the children of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, this mighty angel here in chapter 2, says that this world, this system, this Babylonian ideal system of values has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Can you see the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world and the way that they operate? To live and to dwell and to abide within the systems of this world is to live and to dwell and to abide to fellowship with devils. But to live for the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Where there's life, eternal life, and joy. He says, for all nations, verse 3, have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now, we saw all of this described for us in the study last week. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to get the recording of that message and to listen to it very carefully. This system, this relationship, the fornication of the kings of the earth and the drunkenness or the intoxication of the inhabitants of this world. I believe it's very relevant, very personal to the times that we live in. So I'm not going to go into it again. But he adds something here that we didn't see last week. He says here that the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Now a delicacy, very simply, Webster's Dictionary, it's something delightful or pleasing. Especially a choice food considered with regard to its rarity or costliness or the like. used caviar as an example. Or, B, the fineness of texture, quality, etc., softness, daintiness, the delicacy of lace. Giving the example of something physical. And then number three, and I like this one the best, I believe it fits the context most clearly. Sensuous indulgence, or luxury. And isn't that what drives the economies and the merchants of the earth? To allure and to deceive through things physical that cannot last. And to build wealth upon these systems, these empires of possessions and material things. And it's brought in under the banner of the system of Babylon. That the merchants of the earth have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And then in verse 4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. The angel cries and says, Come out of her, my people. Now, we closed our study last week by reading John chapter 17. One of the last things that Jesus said before he went to the cross, the prayer that he uttered in the audience of his disciples as he prayed for them and prayed for us, those that would believe on on him through their testimony. So praying for us. And very clearly in that prayer, he said, I do not pray that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil. And then he said this, he said, sanctify or separate them through your truth. Your word is truth. So what Jesus prayed for you and for I, is that we would be present here in this world physically. But that we would not be of this world in the way that we carry ourselves and conduct ourselves in this life. That we would be separated by the truth of God. And that is the cry that the angel utters here. It's the application of all that we're seeing in these two chapters is this angel cries out and says to us tonight come out of her my people you are in the world physically but do not be in allegiance with this world spiritually come out of that system why he says that you be not partaker of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues now, here's what happens if you and I take the position that, yes, we are citizens in the kingdom of God, we've accepted Jesus Christ, and we're born again, and we're going to heaven, but, I mean, you know, this is 2011, and, you know, there's things that you got to do, and there there's a way to maneuver and to work this thing so that you can, you know, survive, because, man, it's dog-eat-dog dog out there, and so we've got to do this thing. Well, Jesus has come out. Why? Because if you're in the world, and you're operating within its system, and you're ascribing to its values and its ways, then ultimately, inevitably, you are going to be a partaker of her sins. You are going to begin to participate in the ways of this world, and if you allow yourself to do that, and you allow the sin of it to become a callus upon you, then ultimately, you will also then, the benefits of that sin or the penalty of that sin, which is the fierceness of her plagues See the bible says that the wages of sin is death romans six twenty three. That means that sin Has consequences do you understand that we understand that we know that And 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 sin is a very interesting thing because many times we think that sin is sin or that sin is bad Because god said no In other words, the reason why this behavior or this principle or this way is bad is because God has forbidden it, therefore it's bad. No, 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 that's not why sin is bad. God says no because sin is harmful. Do you understand the difference? It isn't bad because he said no. He says no because it's harmful. If I tell my son, son, do not stick your finger in that three-pronged hole there in the wall. If you do, there is a very grave consequence. You will regret it severely. My son says, he's so restrictive. Doesn't he know that my fingers are the perfect size to fit in those holes? He doesn't want me to experience what's going to happen if I do this. He's so restrictive. Trying to teach me, I'm going to show him that I can do it and I'll be all right. And so he gets emboldened. He looks this way and he looks that and he shoves his fingers into that electrical socket. Boom! You know, hits 115, you know, the breaker trips and the shriek comes out as he cries. Now, if he was like us, he would turn around and say, Dad, you're mean. You're mean because I got shocked. You're mean because I suffered consequences. You're mean because I'm going through this plague of a painful hand in a palpitating heart, you know, and all the rest. No, no, son, I told you not to do that because I knew what would happen if you did. And see, God tells us this. He says, come out of her that you be not a partaker of her sins. And the reason why he warns us to not be a partaker of her sins is because the consequences of those sins are the plagues that come along with them. Come out of her, my people. Be ye separate, saith the Lord, and I will receive you. Be in this world, but not of it. Let your lamps be trimmed and your lights burning and have the right perspective as to who you are and what you're doing with your time here on the earth. Because the time is short. We just finished up Genesis with our kids, you know, going through... taking them through the Bible, and we were looking at the story of Joseph. And it's really fun to take children through and and, and, and kind of let them discover and see the, the glory of how God worked in the lives of these people, and, uh, you know, to read their stories. And we read about the part where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in that dramatic scene where, you know, they're stunned at his presence and everything. And then he brings the whole family, 70 of them, from Canaan down to Egypt where he can then provide for them and take care of them for the rest of the famine. And it struck me, I've probably noticed this before, but it struck me as I was going through it with them that he was very, very clear that he said, listen, you've got to dwell or live in the land of Goshen. And he gives them clear instruction. He says, when you come before Pharaoh, tell him that you are shepherds. They were shepherds. But he says, make sure you say it loudly that they hear you. You're shepherds. Why? Because Egyptians don't like shepherds, and they won't intermingle with them. And so when they came to Pharaoh and said that they were shepherds, Pharaoh says, okay, go live in the land of Goshen. Go over there. And Joseph was very careful being one that had been in Egypt for so long. One that was familiar with the sins of Egypt, the ways of Egypt, and the plagues of Egypt. He said, it will not Farewell for our future if we intermingle with the Egyptians and become accustomed to their ways. And so Joseph, the type of Christ, the type of the one who saved the world, the one who was rejected by his brothers but then was received by them and took care of them, Joseph, he says, listen, you will be in Egypt but you will not be of Egypt. And so the angel here takes the time to declare to us who are reading these words and studying these things to warn us and say, listen, come out of her. Do not be one that bounces back and forth between the kingdom of God saved on Sunday, but back to reality on Monday. Come out of her. Don't operate in those standards according to those values. For her sins, verse 5, have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Now, I love this, because the Bible is so incredible how it's perfect. There's nothing lacking. I mean, it's just, God is so wise the way he does it. And it's so symmetrical. Let me show you how symmetrical the Bible is. Way back in Genesis chapter 11, remember, we studied it last week, the Tower of Babel. What did they say, the citizens of Babylon? They said, we will build a tower that reacheth up to the heavens. Remember? And will make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Now flip over to the mirrored side of the other, you know, the other side of the Bible. Revelation chapter 18. Did they ever make a tower that reached up to heaven? No. But something did. It tells us right here. It says, her sins have reached unto heaven. Brick by brick. Course by course. Compromise after compromise. Their sins reached up to God. He had remembered her iniquities. And in verse 6 he says, Reward her even as she hath rewarded you. And double unto her double according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen. And am no widow and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day. Death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord who judgeth her. So the trial is set before us here as we read here the judgment that is coming to Babylon. Her crimes are laid out there that she hath made nations drunk. She hath committed fornication with the kings. The merchants have waxed rich through her delicacies. She hath corrupted the people of God. And God says, now the sentence will be reward unto her double for all that she hath committed, all that she hath done. She will be burned, she will be tormented, she will be destroyed, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Well, the sentence is carried out. Verse 9. It says, And the kings of the earth, who have committed fornication, and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her, and lament for her, when they shall see the smoke of her burning. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas! Alas, that great city, Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. Isn't it amazing, this relationship, the kings of the earth had had, had been really in an intimate relationship with this system. But now as the judgment comes, it says that they're standing afar off. Suddenly they're not so fond of this system. It's amazing, isn't it? The shallowness of the love in that relationship. Oh, it's this is everything that it's glorious, it's grand, it's incredible. You know, I was thinking about this. I you know, many of you know I work on top of the sky rises in Manhattan. And sometimes to to be on top of like a forty or a sixty story building and to see the entire city. And to look out into all the boroughs, you know, to be able to see over in Giant Stadium and the Statue of Liberty to the South, and then Brooklyn and Queens, and then, you know, uptown, downtown, you can see Stanford and White Plains off in the distance. And, and you just look, it's just buildings, and sometimes it's so ornate. It can, it can almost be beautiful, it's breathtaking. You know, and, and I remember in the study last week, remember when John saw the woman, it says that he marveled? And the angel said, why are you, why are you marveling? You know, like what, what, what are you wondering at? And sometimes when you look at it, there's something about it where it's like, you almost like the disciples say, see this great city, see this great building, this great structure that we have built. But when you think about what's at the core of it, the value system that drives it, what's behind all of that that's been erected, all of the blood that's been shed, all of the corruption that's been enjoined upon, all of the backroom deals, all of the darkness, and all of what it represents and stands for, that literally it is the cage. I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm building prison cells, these condos and these things, you know, the cage of every unclean bird and of foul spirits and all the rest. But now these kings that live so deliciously within the system, that operated and prospered so well within it, now all of a sudden they stand back and say, oh, we don't know what that's about. We don't know that city. We don't know that system. We don't know nothing, but it says because of the fear of the torment. And it says that the merchants weep and mourn because no one buys their merchandise anymore. Now, I love this because it really sounds like a trip to the mall. Right? Or, or a trip to Macy's, if you would. As it describes the things that now are destroyed and decimated and that will be seen no more. First of all, we'll start on the sixth floor. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls. Jewelry. The jewelry department is destroyed. It's decimated. It's melted. It's burned with fire. It's destroyed. It no longer exists. Then we'll ride the escalator down to the fifth floor. And fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet clothing. Then we'll ride to the fourth floor. Home furnishings, and all fine wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory, and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, and of brass, and of iron, and of marble. Home furnishings then destroyed. To the third floor, and cinnamon, and odors, and ointments, and frankincense, cosmetics. It always smells there anyways, don't you get a headache? And then we'll move on to the food court, and the wine, and the oil, and fine flour, and wheat, and beasts, and sheep. And then we'll move to automotive, and horses, and chariots, and then we'll move to the red light district, and slaves, and souls of men, adult books, and And it says, And the fruits that thy soul lusteth after are departed from thee, and all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, and thou shalt find them no more at all. And as God judges the system and the physical manifestation of it, we see Him exercising wrath upon all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things that intoxicate us, that allure us, that capture our attention, that we spend our energy and our life to obtain, so that we might perhaps boast about that which we have attained unto, or that we might consume it upon our lusts and to satisfy the desires of our flesh or of our pride. And we see here, all of it will be destroyed. Every pursuit, every thing will be found no more at all. And the merchants of these things, verse 15, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Do you notice there's two phrases in that verse? He says, first of all, that was clothed in, and then, and was decked with. That both of those things are external coverings. The clothes that are worn, and the ornaments that are, you know, placed upon the body, the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. All the things that present a picture or sell an image, but that deceive from the reality of what's going on internally. Someone asks the question and say, well, what does God have against stuff? I mean, what did the chariots and the horses do? I mean, what did the the, the wood itself and all of that, why, what, what, why are these things, listen here, what does God have against stuff? Is it wrong to have possessions? No, it's not the stuff, it's what the stuff represents. Because the stuff, all of it, is designed to cover up the true condition and the true nature of what's really going on within the system or what's going on internally. And God hates that. I, I printed this up This is, this is part of my story. You know, I got saved when I was 19 years old. And prior to that, I was just a godless 19 year old and all that comes along with that. And I came to a point in my life, as many, you know, of those that come to Christ come to, is just absolute emptiness. Coming to the end of a road of just trying to survive, thinking that I'm gonna figure it out, that I'm gonna, I'm gonna come through. But then finally coming to the realization that no matter what it means to follow God, I've got to follow Him because I'm going to die otherwise. I'll never find it. And so I, I contacted Georgia who had, you know, this. I don't have time to go into the whole story. But anyways, I, I went over to her house and I sat down at her kitchen table and she put this before me, this story that she had written. So this is, this is authored by my wife. And I just want to read it to you because it, it's pertinent to what we're looking at here in Revelation. I'll try not to cry, but I cried when I read it the first time. It says, I walk through the city streets looking up at the magnificent skyscrapers. They bend in above me, bowing to look down upon me. I look at the store window. The colors, the hues fill my senses with delight. The woman with stone eyes stares ahead. Smug smile, carefully painted. A woman passes me with the same face. The cars hurry by me, leaving their deadly carcass of smell surrounding me. Lights shimmer. Streetlights darken the faces of passerbys. The reproduced beauty of this world leaves me with an ache in my heart. I, I look for a face without the painted stars in their eyes, without the painted smiles. Their gazes pass me by, hurrying to nowhere, eyes glazed over with sweet lies hurrying on to find their next truth, knowing the aches of their hearts, seeking comfort and peace from this painted world where people paint one another, looking to produce perfection, forever content with painting one another. It aches my heart. Look at me. Why don't you? Why are you walking ahead, looking for the next best painter in town, to paint you a new smile, a new heart? I continue along the muddy streets, My head becomes dizzy as I look at the skyscrapers. They appear to bow down just to see us. They themselves are a painted wonder. I look at yet another pretty painted face in the store window. The content look in her eyes moves me to stare at her with a longing for that same look to be in my own. The smug style seems to fit her carefree style. A woman passes me by carrying that same face. A man in a business suit walks up to the window waits impatiently for his makeover with blank eyes, continues on, eyes of stone with specks of painted stars. A man sits upon his old porch steps reading the paper. Painters sit around him quietly painting his eyes, his heart, his mind. The paint, slick, thick and dull, creeps into every nook and cranny. They skitter by me, these painted faces, in search of a painter, Their eyes fumble through the windows, searching desperately for the artists themselves. As the vividness of their smile and the color dulls, they become more desperate and grab onto others, asking where the painters have gone to. I look at them in disgust. I look in a reflection and see the same paint smeared upon my face. In greater disgust, I swipe at the fake smile with my hand. It only smears the paint. A woman comes to me, "'Are you two looking for the painter?' It looks like you need at least a little work done. She points to my heart. The blood red paint has rubbed off and some of the blackness is showing. I look at hers covered with bright reds and oranges. I tell her it's just paint. She continues to smile at me as she points to passerby's. Why aren't they all painted? If it weren't for those painters, I don't know where we would be right now. She turns to leave. I look at my heart and rub at the paint with the palm. "'In vain, the paint only fades deeper into darkness. "'A man comes up to me. "'Is your painter here?' he asks. "'I tell him I no longer wish to be painted. "'His bright eyes roll in disgust. "'Well, you must do something with that.' "'He points to my head. "'I I tell him I intend to "'as I chip the colors off my head, "'just not with this paint. "'How are you to obtain all of this knowledge I have?' "'he points to his head, painted with a specialty brush.' Colors and intricate designs fill the outside. It's just paint, I tell him. It chips, it fades. He leaves me with my chips, continuing on with his search. I am smudged. Everything on me is dulled. People point. That's the one, they say. Five painters come at me from all sides, their brushes caked with thick paint. I plug my ears, my eyes, all I can do to avoid contact with the paint. But they are on every side of me. They leave me no sight except for the fading colors. They leave me no joy except their fading laughter. Their laughter. It cries out like screaming eels through their smug smiles. I scream with anguish. Please do not paint me. I don't want to be painted into your image. It fades. It only covers my sores with mounds of paint that continue only to fade. I don't want your paint. They stop suddenly and make way for different painters. I turn longing for an exit. They smile. This paint is different, new, they say. I scream at them as they open their jars. The same familiar stench creeps out. No, it's just as the rest. It's not permanent. It only covers. I can smell it. I kick their jars over. As paint spills joylessly over the street, Passersby scream with delight. They begin to roll in the bright colors. It fades. Stop, I scream. They look at my dull painted figure in disgust. Look at you, they chant. I run, run so quickly out of there. Real droplets seep from my eyes. I see the paint. I taste the paint as the salty tears fall into the corners of my mouth. I run faster, shaking my head. Dried paint clumps to the ground. The air changes. I stop and look up. Mountains, blue and majestic, stand tall before me. I gaze at them in wonder. I rub at the grass beneath me to see the paint fall off, but it doesn't. I look up at the painted sun to watch its paint fade and tarnish, but it doesn't. Its brightness grows. There are no paintbrushes here. I look at my broken, smudged self. I don't belong here, I cry. I, I need to go be painted before I come to such a place. I turn back, but am unable to walk. This is real beauty. I, I want to stay, but I can't. I don't belong hear his voice. I see his glory as it surrounds me. I know now where I am. In his presence, I look for a hiding place. I cover my black heart with the palm of my hand. I look down. I, I am see-through, completely transparent. Nothing in me stands out except my black heart. It crumples in the sun like a handful of black ashes. I fall to the ground faint. I feel around for my head, but the paint had proved itself to be nothing in this light. All of that intricate painting, and it did me nothing. I kneel here as nothing. My heart is made of ashes. My mind of dried clay. I have no part, no place in this area of beauty. Lord, I need to go back to that place. The paint, it covered these parts. My questions, Lord, my faint heart, the paint made them disappear. The paint made me appear brilliant without any lack. Your light only exposes the truth. Lord, I really don't think you would want me to walk around with this sort of knowledge of how I really was just or was just for the sake of truth. Now, would you? Well, wait, don't answer that. Lord, my painter back there, he was good. I mean, I really had the better brand. You should have seen some of the other ones. I was much better off. Good coloring I had. Some of them had sick coloring. There, I had realized my place. I turned to retrace my steps. They were all there. Footprints of chipped paint. I stalled. I knew what was back there. I knew the right paint to buy. I would be better off. But I couldn't leave. This place was so real. Not coated. The beauty flowed from everything in this place. I turned around to take one more glance at those mountains so far from my reach. As I turned, I saw a man with my heart's ashes in his palms. I shook, needing to stay. I love this heart, he said, tears flowing from my eyes. Please, just let it melt into that ground there. It's made up of ashes, of dirt, of dust. I trembled, needing to give them back. He continued to embrace it. Let me have it, he said. Don't continue to paint over these sores. This heart is not made of dust. It's made in the image of mine. It was formed as I breathed life into you. The painters of that place paint your hearts and minds with temporary coloring. Coloring that fades, dulling his beauty and yet blinds. I work from the inside. When you rest with me. My work is real and true. Never fading. But only to shine with more radiance as I work. Discard of the fake. Come to me. And lose those chains. And I remember when I read that. Everything came to perfect clarity for me. To see all that this world is. All that it does. All that it produces. All that it promises. And yet it's all just paint. God hates paint. Now, I mean, he doesn't hate paint. If you're painting your house it's okay. you can you're... But the paint described here the cosmetics, the jewelry, the home furnishings, the automobiles, the status, the suits, the look it's paint. It fades. It doesn't last. For in one hour, so great riches is come to nothing. Do you hear it? In one hour. What took 6,000 years, in one hour comes to nothing. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off. And cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour she is made desolate. Now this is the fourth time in this chapter that the word riches is used. It's not been used prior to this in the book of Revelation, but here it seems to be coming to the forefront, this whole concept of riches. Even in the last chapter when Babylon was brought up, it isn't really brought forward, but here four times it holds this up before us, those that have been made rich or pursued riches, and we see those riches and what happens to them. It seems to me that in the United States of America today, The thing that drives life more than anything else is this pursuit of riches or chasing after the almighty dollar or living for the paycheck or wealth. When the pilgrims came to this country from Europe, you know, back Uh, you know, 500 years ago when, you know, Christopher Columbus and all the, the original guys came over and then the pilgrims came over. The reason, the thing that motivated them to risk all and leave all and to come here is because they were tired of the tyranny and the poverty of living over there. They wanted to be free. They wanted to have life. What they were living was not life. And so they ventured and came, and many of them died, and they, they they sacrificed because they wanted to come here because they wanted to live. And when this country was in its founding stages, the emphasis of the people, the the heartbeat, if you would, the pulse, the cry, the the desire of the people was simply just to survive. Would there be enough rain to produce a crop that would carry them through the winter? would there be you know enough health or would there be a plague that would come through and would they even survive to be able to see something come of this land that they had discovered this hope that they had found and so survival was the heartbeat of the nation in its founding but then once it became clear that there would be survival and that people were okay and that there was enough food then the pulse or the heartbeat the drive of our nation became to expand let's push west the Louisiana Purchase. You know, we'll push the people over and we'll just keep going and we'll take this land. It's a good land. You know, there's opportunity here. There's life here. There's freedom. And so they expanded and, and, and that was the thing, to, to expand. But then once the borders were kind of completed and we had expanded as far as there was to expand, then the pulse of our nation became to develop, to industrialize, to grow. And that's what happened. You know, you come through the industrial age and, you know, innovations and technology developed and people began to develop. Big business came onto the scene and and just development. But where we stand now, on the other side of survival, expansion, and development, now the heartbeat, the pulse rate of the nation is simply get rich. Just get rich. Use the system. Do what you got to do. Make a buck. Leave your mark. Call it a day. That's what this country has become all about. Now, the problem with that is that, first of all, riches don't provide what they promise to provide. Contentment, happiness, security, opportunity, all of those things that riches promise us as we pursue them, they don't have power to deliver. I always think of the rich young ruler. You know that rich young ruler that came to Jesus? And he said, teacher, we know that you are come from God. you know." And he gives him this great spiel. He calls him good master and all the rest. But he comes to him and he says, listen, I'm a rich young ruler. I've got money. I've got youth. I've got power. I'm a ruler. I've got everything this world seeks after. And you know what he said to Jesus? He said, what must I do that I may have eternal life? See, I have all those things, but I don't have life. I don't have contentment. I'm not satisfied. I don't have peace within my heart that... That this is eternal. See, it doesn't last. It can't provide what it promises. The second problem with riches is that riches cannot save you. Remember the man that Jesus spoke of who said, Hey, I've I've done it. I've laid up much good, many goods for a long time. I'm going to be great. He said, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And I'm going to say unto my soul, Soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said of that man, he said, Thou fool. Don't you know that this night your soul will be required of you? Then whose riches will they be of whom you speak? And Jesus said, so is everyone who is rich in this world and yet is not rich towards God. See, riches can't save you. They can't buy your way into eternal life. You have to leave them behind. Solomon, the richest man that ever lived, his greatest frustration was, who, Why do I have to leave all this to a fool? He realized he couldn't take it with him. Third problem with riches is that riches don't last. We see that right here in our text in Revelation. It says, for such great riches, this entire empire of wealth and plastic money in one hour comes to nothing. I experience that every week. Do you? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Verses seven through twelve, Paul gives us an incredible exhortation on how what is our what is our relationship as Christians to money. He says, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. Which while some coveted after. They have erred from the faith. And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God. Flee these things. And follow after righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love. Patience, meekness, and fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou also art called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. The exhortation to us is listen, you can't take it with you. And if you live your life in a desire to be wealthy and to achieve and to attain unto that, he says that you will pierce yourself through with many sorrows and you will be drowned in perdition and in destruction. And that you will be flirting very closely with evil. It's the root of all evil, the love of money. Have a sober perspective, Christian. Lean upon the Lord. Jesus said, which of you by taking anxious thought can add one cubit to your stature? One inch. And he was speaking of it in the context of money. He said, you cannot serve God and money. God will provide for you. God will take care of you. But if you make that your aim, if you make it your goal, You're flirting with destruction. God is going to judge the riches. Well, verse 20, we have the response as we close out. It says, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets. For God hath avenged you on her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft he be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth For by their sorceries they were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all that were slain upon the earth. So the destruction of this world's system. Of Babylon the great. The cry of the angel that it is fallen. It is fallen. As we close Beyond the clear intent of this chapter, which obviously is to show to us the destruction of this great Babylon and all that it represents, there's also an intent that fits us here tonight. Beyond just the information of what is to come, the clarion call resounds to us what it says in verse 4, the angel cried and said, come out of her, my people. At the beginning of this study, we talked about the two systems. That which is of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. And that which is of the Father. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Listen, if your dwelling place, if where you're living, if where your life is built and founded upon and established is Babylon, then you are in fellowship with demons. Your dwelling place is among demons, foul spirits and lost souls. The values that are intoxicating you and that are alluring you are pleasures, indulgences, riches, and your end will be plagues and destruction. And your life is signified by nothing but paint and vanity. It will all come to nothing. Conversely, Jesus spoke to his disciples. Again, one of the last things that he said before going to the cross. In the 15th chapter of John, he said, I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it brings forth more fruit. And every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he remains. And then in verse 4, Jesus said to his disciples, to you and me here tonight, he said, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, nor can you except you abide in me, Jesus said. You are either abiding in this world and its system or you're abiding in Christ. If you abide in this world system, well, you know. But if you abide in Christ, Jesus said, that you will bear much fruit, that you will not be withered, you won't be feeling weary and worn out, but that you'll bring glory to the Father, you'll lead a fruitful and abundant life. And it's the privilege that we have to draw from Him To let Him be our source, to let Him be our guide, to immerse ourselves within the Word of God. He tells us that in in that section, you can read it on your own, John chapter 15, He tells us that to let Him abide in us is to let His words abide in us. Let my words abide in you, He says, to immerse yourself, to soak yourself in the principles, the ways of God, the precepts of Scripture. And to let Him govern and, and reign, literally, over your life. To abide in you. And you abide in him. It means to be obedient to his word, to his voice, to his spirit. As he prompts your heart on a daily basis, moment by moment. To allow him access to every area of your life. And to surrender all to him. And it's a relationship. Abiding in him. His words abiding in you. And the Bible says that you will be fruitful. You will be called his disciple. And you will bring glory to his father. And he he completes it all by saying that your joy will be full. Your prayers will be heard. The exhortation of our study tonight to you is to come out of Babylon's system. Abide in Jesus Christ. It's eternal. It's lasting. It's life. May God give us wisdom. Let's stand and pray together. <clears throat> Father, we just uh, are so grateful, Lord, for the truth. Truly, Lord, this is the book of Revelation. And Lord, we see these things. We we experience them. But Lord, when we see it here in the pages of Scripture, it becomes so clear. Your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And I pray, Lord, that you would hide this word in our hearts. That as we go back to our jobs tomorrow and back into our life situations, whatever they be, that this word would be a goad that would steer us in the right direction, that He would keep us from moving in those ungodly ways, lusting after ungodly things, living with ungodly ambitions, being deceived by things that can't last, things that can't give life. I pray that each one of us here would live completely for you. I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh. Lord, where we've become detached from the vine. Where we sense that our lives, that we've become withered, that we're drying out this branch as we've sought to go it on our own. I pray, Lord, that this time right now would be a time of grafting in time where your word would water the roots of the soul where again there would be a pressing into the vine a repentance of living after worldly things we pray that you would revive that you would bless, that you would fill and I pray for each person here Lord that we would be fruitful that we would hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. I pray for any here that feel choked, Lord. The thorns, the cares of this life, causing the word to become unfruitful. Causing the light to be dimmed. The vision to be blurred. I pray that right now as the master gardener, Lord, you would go through, that you'd sweep out those things that you would teach us again to live a life of obedience, of absolute surrender to your name, to your will, to your purposes, and to serve your people. Fill our hearts with life, we pray. Send us from this place filled with your love. Fill us now. In Jesus' name,